0: For those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter, and I'm an elder here at KW Redeemer, and I have the distinct privilege of sharing the message with you this morning while uh, our pastor is on holidays. Um, and uh, before we get into it, I wanted to acknowledge the debt of gratitude that I owe to uh, a few people, uh, Pastor Paul being one in his uh, input and insights in preparing. For today, um, James Smith is another, is a Christian philosopher who uh, authored a book that I drew on quite a bit uh, in today's message. Um, and of course, uh, Brianna, who um, created the space for me to be able to prepare for today, and who's working diligently to keep the kids at bay so that they don't come bursting through um, during this uh, during this time. But no promises. Um, We're going to be focusing on Psalm 121 uh, today, so uh, you can start flipping there in your Bibles, or you can uh, wait for uh, it to be displayed on your screens when we get uh, to, uh, to reading the text. Have you ever heard someone say, life is about the journey? Perhaps a friend has said it to you in passing or the character of a movie or a show you watched recently at the at the end of a saga of self-discovery it's a quote attributed to ralph waldo emerson life is about the journey not the destination it's part of the live in the moment philosophy that our culture has so widely accepted and embraced that life is about the people you meet and love along the way and so live in the moment cherish the experience i didn't have to look hard to find examples of this uh, i actually came across it by accident when reading the uh, the local newspaper the uh, the record a couple weeks ago um and uh it's a, it a political cartoon that i found and i'll actually display it on our screens so that uh I don't have to just describe it. Let's see if this works. So this is a cartoon. It was following the passing of uh, the late Prince Philip that I came across. Um, and you can see Prince Philip and the Queen walking down a winding road from a castle. The destination's not in view, um, but Prince Philip is leaving the road, waving goodbye to the queen while he continued on the road. Uh, And that image captures the cultural consensus of what life is about. It's a journey with an unknown destination. So when life is over, you're just getting off the road while everyone else keeps going. And there's some key problems with that philosophy that understanding Uh, first by making the journey the destination it effectively removes the destination Um, and it doesn't make sense of difficult journeys what if my life is difficult someone might be tempted to think that if life is about the journey and my journey is pretty hard i'm not sure i like what life is about So like I said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 121, a relatively well-known psalm, I'd say, and it provides, it's a psalm that provides a clear depiction of what life should be oriented around and how to navigate difficult journeys in life. It's a psalm that acknowledges that life can be difficult and provides the hope of an answer to our questions about what to do when the going gets tough something I trust that uh, each one of us has experienced in one way or the other in the past 14 months of this pandemic. So I will just share my screen so that I can display the text. Psalm 121, a song of a sense. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This psalm is known by some as the traveler's psalm. It's a song of ascents, uh, as you saw. And it's the second of a series of 15 psalms that, uh, that include the psalms of ascents, songs of ascents that were written to be sung by worshipers as they journeyed on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. But it is much more than just a literal account of an ancient pilgrimage. It's a picture of every human story and of Christ entering that story. Now, hills were of special significance in ancient times because they often represented refuge and security because of their strategic advantage in keeping watch of approaching enemies and physically fending them off. You gamers would understand this when you're playing Fortnite. Whoever has a high ground has the advantage. So the hill is a symbol of refuge, security, and hope. The psalmist is looking around at a range of hills or mini messiahs and wondering where does my help come from? Which one of these hills is my security, my refuge, and my hope? Which will solve my problems or relieve my suffering? Is it the career hill? Is it the money hill? Uh, maybe it's the status, family hill, science, politics, you name it. What is the solution to my problems? And that's a core question that I think is that um, that is there for every human being, whether we acknowledge it or not. And the psalmist is asking that question. Jerusalem was surrounded by hills, but there was one hill in particular that was special to Israel, and that was Zion, because God had made his presence known in a special way at the hill of Zion. And Zion was, therefore, the physical symbol of the dwelling of the dwelling of God. And it was also what Jerusalem was often referred to as. And in Psalm 2, verse 6, God declares, I have installed my king, that's with a capital K. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And my king is a reference to king of Israel, who was a representative of God on earth. And scholars indicate that this verse uh, anticipates Christ because the kings of Israel were also a type of Christ, anointed intermediaries. They were a line of kings, remember, from which Jesus was ultimately born. And this stems from the Davidic covenant or the promise that God made with King David, which was an unconditional promise that God's kingdom would be established through the line of David. And covenants in the ancient world operated a lot like we understand. um, They did not operate like we understand modern day contracts. Uh, Contracts today, we understand, to be conditional on both parties complying. And God's covenants were different in that he promised to be faithful to his end of the deal, despite human unfaithfulness and on the basis of his own faithfulness through the work of Christ. And so God's covenant with David was later confirmed confirmed by the angel Gabriel in Luke 1, where he appeared to Mary and said to her that God will give her will give her son the throne of his father David and of his kingdom there will be no end. So we see there the that fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And how Christ um, is fulfilling that promise um, that was made all the way back, in, even in Psalm 2. And so the psalmist looks out at the hills in verse 1, asking which one is going to be his hope and security. And he immediately identifies Zion, the holy hill, by declaring that my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And looking upon Zion, the psalmist is reminded of God's unconditional love for him as expressed in the unconditional covenant he made with David. He then adds to that God's omnipotence. He's the creator of heaven and earth, and by implication, everything in between heaven and earth. This is a God who is all-powerful and all for you. So right away in the first two verses, the Israelites would have recognized God's covenant promises to them. And our advantage being on this side of the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus is that we understand reference to the Lord in verse two to not only mean the God of David, but also to mean the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth to die for us. As the psalmist looks out among all the various potential solutions to his problems, he immediately latches on to Jesus. And this orientation tells us But this orientation that the psalmist starts off with is key. So we are on the road with the psalmist, and he is telling us how to travel that road with our eyes fixed on the maker of heaven and earth, our refuge, and our ultimate destination. He contrasts that with the aimless wandering of the modern belief that life is the journey. If the road beneath you is the journey, then how do I know where I'm going? When the going gets tough, when I hit obstacles in the road or darkness, how do I know where to turn? Have you ever gone for a drive um, or a walk or a bike ride with no specific destination in mind? Uh, Maybe in these pandemic times, trying to kill time, whatever the reason may be, Um, it feels strange, right? There's no sense of urgency or significance. Should I go left or should I go right? Doesn't really matter because I have no destination. I'm not going to be late because there's no one waiting for me at the other end. A destination informs whether you should turn left or right because that will determine the quickest or the easiest or the best way to get to your destination. Without a destination, we lose our sense of purpose. And we lose our orientation. St. Augustine realized that the human heart is on a road trip of sorts, that we are all prodigals, like the prodigal son. We don't feel at home, so we, we, we run away to be free, seeking to be filled by what's out on the road ahead. But like the prodigal, we all end up wandering, looking for a purpose. Culture tells us that life is free on the open road. Don't be tied down. They say, go on the open road. It sounds so attractive. That must be the hill for me, we think. But I think many of us know, uh, either from experience or seeing it in others around us, that as good as the open road may be at first, sooner or later, the traveler wants to go home. And we see this uh, this, this really natural human tendency um Around us. I've seen this in uh, in uh, play out um, in in friends who have gone off after higher education to the big city, with the promise of opportunity and excitement. But after a few years, that excitement and that uh, that energy and everything that that promised, uh, it it begins to fade, and there's a desire to go home, and they want to move back to where they came from, outside of the city. And there's something fundamentally human about that desire uh, that the psalmist is touching on here in, in Psalm 121. And the psalmist declares that he has found his home. His home is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Augustine is encouraging us travelers to ask ourselves, what if I went home? In the same way, the prodigal son asked him, himself that question when he was wandering at rock bottom eating slop with the pigs. He was hopeless and aimless and then thought, what if I went home? Uh, James Smith unpacks this teaching um, from Augustine's Confessions in the book that I referred to earlier. It's called On the Road with St. Augustine. Um, And James Smith says uh, in that book, um, again, unpacking some of the uh, the teachings of Augustine, he says, our restlessness is a reflection of what we try to enjoy as an end in itself. Our heart's hunger is infinite, so we will always be disappointed with anything nearly finite. There is joy in the journey precisely when we don't try to make a home out of our car. There is love on the road when we stop loving the road. There is delight in the sojourn when we know where home is. And now, this this re- resonates with, with me in particular um, from my own experience. Because as a kid, I was uh, quite obsessed, you would say, with cars. Uh, I went to the auto show religiously like a car-worshipping pilgrim every year. Uh, it was in February, the dead of winter, but was often the highlight of my year. Um, and I had every square inch, uh, to borrow a phrase from Kuiper, of my bedroom was covered with car posters. Um, I subscribed to all the car magazines. Um, I would go visit local dealerships, usually the BMW dealership, just to admire the latest in German engineering. Um, and uh and even you know uh wanted to be a lawyer uh, at that age because i the lawyers i saw on tv all drove BMWs and that's what i wanted so that that was that was my obsession um and then uh when in my late teens i um gave my my life into into the hands of the lord and confessed my faith in christ i Felt like an enormous weight of materialistic obsession had been lifted. Uh, I was no longer consumed by cars and coveting them. And uh, over the nor- over the course of the next several years after that, I had sort of neglected my interest in cars. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't until after my university uh, undergrad that uh, when I was living in an intentional community, Um, In in Charlottesville, I was being trained in scripture and at work and in church leadership and had a community of of mentors around me that I was um, able to understand that the material world is not something to be rejected and our passions and interests aren't necessarily to be rejected, but they can be enjoyed when we don't make them ultimate. And that gave me the ability to recultivate my interest in cards and to appreciate that I can enjoy them uh, without being consumed by them um, where I don't make them ultimate. And, uh, and so I can appreciate the beauty and mechanics of, of cars now to this day. And it doesn't mean that it's not um, a temptation still to make it ultimate. That is something that I continue need to continually need to keep in check. Um, but it is something where I'm not making the car my home. And so I'm able to enjoy that journey. And Augustine says that conversion doesn't pluck you off the road, it just changes how you travel. And so the remainder of Psalm 121 describes for us how our travel is changed when we are united to Christ. So in verse 3, the psalmist says that he will not let your foot, that the Lord will not let your foot be moved what does that really mean? Because that's not our experience, right? Bad things happen to God's people all the time. We experience suffering, anxiety, loss, sorrow, depression, temptations, and all forms of brokenness. So what's the psalmist mean here? So the psalmist is saying that God, like a hill, is immovable. And he is your guardian. And united to him, we are sure-footed. His unconditional love gives us the confidence and security in our identity that we need to boldly place one foot in front of the other as we traverse the difficult and dangerous path of life. And this sure-footedness will not give us immunity from tragedy and sorrow, but it will give us stability. And we will not... um, yeah, it will It will give us stabi- stability. And continuing on in through verses 3 to 4, it says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Many of you will be familiar with the Old Testament story of Elijah uh, and his confrontation with the prophets uh, of Baal, describing their false god of Baal as sleeping they were crying out to him to bring fire onto their altar and cutting themselves and going to great lengths crying up to the heavens and Elijah uh, suggested that perhaps Baal was sleeping and to be asleep is to be inactive uh, impotent unaware unresponsive unengaged There's never a moment when God is any of those things. He's never asleep at the switch. He's never tempted to give in to fatigue. He's always active, attentive, watching, and keeping. And the word keep is used six times in six verses between verses 3 to 8 of Psalm 121. And the word keep in Hebrew is shamar, which means to watch with the intent of guarding and preserving. It's a uh, militant and intense word, signaling a fierce protection. And that that protection is emphasized even more by the, the repetition the psalmist intentionally uses here, reminding the reader of God's jealous protection and care over us. Verse five, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The right hand is very significant throughout scripture. It is a symbol of strength and authority. God is saying that he himself will be the protection over that hand, casting shade as protection from the sun. He restores your strength and provides for your every need. In verse 6, the psalmist says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. And this is a pair of opposites, meant, again, to capture everything in between. From everything the sun strikes to what the moon strikes, God will keep you. The sun itself, with its, with its heat, will not smite you by day, or the moon with the cold moisture of night. And like he kept Israel in the wilderness by day with a pillar of cloud to shade them from the sun and a pillar of fire by night to keep them warm and dry so God will protect us on our journey. The final two verses, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The uh, British Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, says, In the light of other scriptures, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. So this verse doesn't mean that we are alleviated from our suffering or that we are entitled to a life of ease. God is not taking us off the road, so to speak. He's coming alongside us. He entered into our suffering. And he knows what we're going through. And he's journeying through it with us. And so where does this leave us? We know from scripture that we are currently situated in a period called the already and the not yet. It's this period where Christ has defeated death on the cross on our behalf but we still experience death and suffering ourselves. Like Israel, after the exodus from Egypt were not brought immediately to their homeland, they wandered through the lonely desert, fending off enemies and temptations along the way, before they eventually reached Jerusalem, their homeland. And during that time, the Israelites sighed after the promised homeland. And so, too, after baptism, the Christian life must still confront temptations. Because even though Christ has defeated death, we have not yet reached our homeland, though we sigh for it. We live in this tension of being citizens of, hell, of heaven, dwelling in the earthly city. As Augustine describes, conversion is not arrival at our destination, it's the acquisition of a compass. The psalmist is telling us where that compass is guiding us. It's guiding us towards Zion and what the ancient Israelites understood as Jerusalem. And we on this side of the cross understand as the new Jerusalem, where God will make all things new. And we will dwell with him in perfect unity. In John 14, after explaining to his disciples the work he would do and that he would be leaving. One of Jesus' disciples asked him, How can we know the way? Jesus responded with what is is a very famous passage. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. The road who, as God become human, makes it possible for humanity to reach God. I'll just say that again. As God who became human, Jesus makes it possible for humanity to reach God. St. Augustine says, For there is hope to attain a journey's end when there is a path which stretches between the traveler and his goal. But if there is no path, or if a man does not know which way to go, there is little use in knowing the destination. As it is, there is one road and one only— well secured against all possibility of going astray. And this road is provided by one who is himself, both God and man. As God, he is the goal. As man, he is the way. Now maybe you're listening this morning and you're exploring Christian faith. Perhaps you're someone on this road, unclear of where your home is. You're looking out at the hills and wondering if Zion really is The best destination. And if it is, is Jesus the way to get there? The good news of the gospel is that God fulfilled his covenant with his people by sending his son to pay our debt for us. That is the new covenant called the covenant of grace. And by it, we have saving life in Christ Jesus. And not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ's finished work on the cross. We don't have to search for God. God meets us on the road. He has come down into our suffering to come and greet us, to come and get us, to retrieve us. He not only knows where the end of the road is, but he promises to accompany us the rest of the way, to never leave us or forsake us. Like the father of the prodigal son running down the road to greet the son with open arms, so God runs down the road to meet us with grace. And he doesn't promise a life of ease, of perfect health and leisure, but he does promise to come alongside us. James Smith says, Grace isn't high-speed transport all the way to the end, but the gift of God's presence the rest of the way. And it is the remarkable promise of his Son who meets us in this distance. In John 14, verse 2, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms, a house with many rooms. It sounds good. That sounds like a good home. There is room for you in the father's house. His house is your destination, and he will be with you every step of the way. Are you wandering? Then come home. Invite the spirit to do a renewing work in your lives. Orienting the compass of your life towards the one who knows the way and in whom you can put your trust. Are you in a season of suffering right now? Then know that the sure-footedness of your unity with Christ will guide you because he is faithful and he loves you. There, he is a destination. He is the destination and the way. You may not see it right now, but he knows the way and will guide you through it. And so, church, as we look out on the horizon of this week, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And may the Spirit do a renewing work in our lives so that we may not be distracted by the temptations of all the other hills and the many messiahs around us. And instead, desire more and more to seek God. Where does our help come from, church? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Let us pray. Almighty God, send us your spirit that we may see your work in our lives, that we may see through the empty promises all around us of security, happiness, and fulfillment that we know can only come from you. May our hearts be oriented towards you, O God, that we may rest secured in your love for us and may be carried through whatever trials and difficulties we may encounter in this week and beyond. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.